0: Chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. You can find it on page 576 in the paper Bibles. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. No. So they, said to, so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the, the prophet?" John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of those sandals, I am not worthy to unite, but to untie. These things, look, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptized. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Okay. Uh, we need to pay close attention to the way that John is weaving this narrative. Um, we this is our third sermon in one chapter, We we not usually go this slowly. Um, and as a result, uh, there's a layering that's happening that we might miss if we didn't, uh, pay attention to it. So, you'll notice that this is the first time we're going to be really paying attention to John the Baptist. Um. However, he's been mentioned twice already uh, before we even get to this point. Um, Verses uh, 6 through 8, he is called the witness of the light. Verse 15, uh, from two weeks ago, uh, he is mentioned there. Um, And now in this passage, uh, John the Evangelist is zooming in uh, to look closely at John the Baptist. He said that John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. And this is the first passage where we get the the content of that witness. Uh, What is the witness that he is bearing? What is he testifying to when it comes to his testifying to the light, his witnessing of the light? So we've got to be careful not to disconnect um, these passages that John is layering upon each other. We've got to look at it. what is his testimony, what is his witness, and, uh, and we see that in verse 23. Verse 23 gives us the substance of that testimony. Um, maybe a famous passage, or, or a famous line. Verse 23 says, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, now he's quoting from... Uh, Isaiah chapter 4, which, uh, which we also read this morning. Now, um, this is a very common way in the ancient theories of, of citation. When you wanted somebody to, to pay attention to uh, a whole document, or a whole speech, or a whole something, you would quote just a tiny bit of it. And everybody would, would you know, people memorized things very easily back then, it was embedded in the culture. Uh, so if she quotes this little bit of Isaiah 40, the whole thing comes to mind. So why is John wanting to point his questioners, why is his testimony about uh, the light referring to Isaiah 40? So to answer that, we're going to have to look at Isaiah 40, we're going to have to look closely at what John says. So first, just, just very briefly, um, I, I don't really know why translations continue to punctuate it this way. Uh, but in verse 23 you, know, you see the quotation marks for what John the Baptist says start after the word wilderness so John said I am the voice of one crying this is how our translators are rendering this I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said so the way that that's punctuated where the quotation marks are it sounds like John is saying, John the Baptist is saying, I'm someone in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. The scholarly consensus, it's it's strange to me, because the the people who translated this are top notch scholars. Uh, But the consensus among scholars, when they talk about this passage, or, or Isaiah 40, is that the quotation mark should go around in the wilderness, so that the person crying isn't necessarily in the wilderness. But the preparation is in the wilderness. That the way of the Lord is coming through the wilderness. That this king who is coming is coming across the desert. And John wants us to pay attention. John the Baptist and John the Evangelist wants us to pay attention to all of Isaiah 4. Uh, to understand what his witness about the light will be. So, first of all, um, another tiny translation issue. This one has tremendous significance. Um, you know, in fact, if you still got Isaiah 40 open, stick your finger in want to, we we're going to need to flip back and forth between these two passages a little bit. So, in Isaiah 40, um, in verse 3, when it says, Prepare the way of the Lord, um, Take notice that the word Lord uh, is in all capital letters. L-O-R-D, all capital letters. That is because uh, the word in Hebrew, as Isaiah 40 was written in Hebrew, the word in Hebrew is not the word for Lord or Master or Ruler. The word in Hebrew uh, is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Um, It's like His first name. Um, But for various reasons, the tradition developed over many centuries never to pronounce that name. And so the (laughs) habit became that when you were reading, like maybe, maybe, if you remember when you were a kid, if you were ever, I don't know if this was your experience, but if I was ever reading something that had, say, my dad's name in it, I would always feel a little strange when I got to that part, referring to him as "A." So if I was reading something that had my dad's name in it, I would get to that point, and I would see the letters AL, but I would pronounce out loud, my dad. <laughs> okay, That's the idea here. When, the, when uh, Hebrew readers saw the, the letters that spelled Yahweh, they, instead of saying Yahweh, would just say Lord in Hebrew. Adonai would say Lord. And so that became a habit in in translation as well. But to indicate that that's what it is, it's L-O-R-D. Now why why am I spending three minutes telling you about that? Because when John says, my mission is to say, prepare the way of the Lord, his hearers understand that he is talking about God and not a mere man. That John says, make straight the way of the Lord he means God himself by his personal name. I gotta wonder what these priests and Levites were sent by the Pharisees were thinking when they heard that answer. I, I conclude that they must have been a little perplexed by it, a little bit caught off guard by it, because they have no retort. They have no further question they don't say anything like what do you mean prepare the way of the lord are you saying that god himself is coming they 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 seem to just ignore it as if they don't even understand what's happening i think that it was just so far off their radar that they didn't even have a follow-up prepared for them all they could continue to ask was well if you're not the christ and you're not elijah and you're not the prophet then why are you baptizing? So they, 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 you know, they're really concerned about the procedure, but this answer that he gives about my mission is to proclaim in the desert, make straight away of, of God himself. Uh, they don't quite know what to do with that, especially since, well, I'll tell you that. No, I will tell you that, verse 26. Verse 26 back in John 1, especially since, his answer is, "I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie." The loftiest and most ancient Christian Christology is being laid out here in a couple of sentences by John. That I am saying. My job is to say, make straight in the wilderness the way of God himself. And the one who comes after me is a man standing among you that you don't even know. That I am here to proclaim the coming of a person who is God. Of a man standing among you who is Yahweh. It's blasphemous if they understood it. they don't understand Him or they would have have taken Him into custody on the spot. So John's message, John the Baptist's message, his testimony is that the true light is this man, Jesus. His testimony is that the glorious King is the true light united in in a human body and he's coming to rescue God's people. And that's why he wants us to look at Isaiah 40. Because Isaiah 40 is about God himself coming to the rescue of his people. Okay, So John is saying what? He's saying that the king is coming. He's saying that he's coming to rescue God's people. And that king is God himself. And we're going to have to ask, what does the glory of the king look like? So first, John is saying that the King is coming. In uh, in both John and in Isaiah forty, the voice of one crying. Um, the voice of one crying. It's a it's a solid translation, um, but if you wanted to really cut to it, you could say, um, "Hark, listen, a crier, listen." crier, it's only two words in Hebrew, this whole, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Or the voice of one crying, There's two words in Hebrew. Listen, a crier. And what's a crier? A crier, a herald. This is a person whose job it is to go before a king as a king is approaching somewhere and cry out, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Prepare, prepare, the king is coming. That's his job. Relatively unimportant dude. You would never know his name. You wouldn't care about him if you saw him in the street. But when he speaks in that capacity, things happen. Important things happen all around him. Uh, We don't have much of this uh, in our culture. But we have, you know, we have hail to the chief that they play. Uh, you hear that song. I'm not even going to try to hunt it for you, but you know it. It's the one that they play when the president is coming. Everybody knows that the president is coming, and they have to stand up and salute. Um, we do this uh, We do this at weddings, tiny bit, in a, in a much more low-key way. But you have the flower girl coming down the aisle, sprinkling the flowers, the bride is coming. And then, and then her, her entourage precedes her. They go down in front of her. Um, this was, how, this was how great people, kings and rulers, entered a place. Someone would go in front, um, making the way ready, and then other people would go in front who served them. Have um, you ever seen Cleopatra, the 1963 movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and Richard Harris? a fantastic movie. Um, 10 minutes, 10 minutes of, of, in a movie that's an eternity. 10 minutes of horses and archers, and ribbons, and gold, and dancers, and more horses, and more archers, and more, and more, and more, until finally, it seems like 200 men pulling this giant stone sphinx with Cleopatra and her son sitting at the top of it. And they pull it to the to, in front of Caesar. And she doesn't even get up. These slaves pick up the platform that she's sitting on and walk slowly down and it takes forever. It's this enormous (laughs) pond circumstance and this is how this is the image that John the Baptist is evoking when he says, I'm the crier saying, in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord. I mean, the most recent uh, thing you've probably seen this in is okay? When the genie starts to sing, make way for Prince Ali, right? And, and again, like just,
0: just,
1: in fact, this is a great example because all I have to do is say that. All I have to do is say, I'm the voice of one crying in, in you know, outside Agrabah, make way for Prince Ali, and the whole song comes to mind. Yeah. And you can see Abu as the elephant and the peacocks and monkeys, and, uh, and all of the voices that Robin Williams does, as he is the herald of the coming prince, right? His goal, like, like, like why is the genie doing this? He wants everybody to know that this really important person is coming and to be excited about it. And the response that the people of the city have would be the, the appropriate response. This is uh, uh, this herald is someone who announces the coming of a king. Now, in the context uh, uh, of Isaiah 40, this is the second point that this king is coming to rescue God's people. Now, let's take a look. Now you can flip to Isaiah 40. It's, uh, it's uh, a happy coincidence um, that we have just finished uh, preaching through several parts of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah and Isaiah are dealing with much the same thing. They're dealing with the people of God uh, in rebelling against Him. And, and the, the image is that God is their, their overlord. Um, and they are being unfaithful to Him. They are not keeping their under the bargain with Him. And He's sending them warnings and warnings and warnings. And and then he's sending them judgment as a result of their ignoring of his warrant. Um, And the final step is you're going to be cut off. I'm going to remove you from the land. Um, The things that I have given you, I'm going to take away. And as these things are happening, as these judgments are starting to come, Israel and Judah start to... Well, maybe we can make an alliance with Assyria. You'll remember this from from the fall. Maybe we'll make an alliance with Assyria and Assyria love us. But Assyria is their enemy, Assyria people. Let's do enslave them and destroy them. And Egypt, they start looking. can we make an alliance? They were already slaves in Egypt. Uh, It's insanity on their part to try to look to these two powers to save them. But that's what they've been doing. And it has led to war and conflict and pain and suffering. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah hit this again and again, harder and harder. And Isaiah chapter 40 begins, Comfort my people, comfort, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God himself is coming. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Okay, so this is the image. You are in a walled city, surrounded by desert. Or at least desert to one side. And uh, an army too big for you has surrounded the city. And you have been trapped there. And you have been fighting against them, but it's people. And you start. And you're running out of provisions. And soon you're going to have to let them out. and his uh, army coming. And the messenger is saying, warfare is ended." That's the comfort. That's the comfort. You have been terrified for your life, and now the conquering king is coming, your rightful king is coming, and he's going to drive your enemies away. And that's what's repeated throughout Isaiah 40. They rebelled against the king. And now he is coming. Now if that's, if you start, if you just start there, if you just start with Isaiah 1 through 39 and rehearse the rebellion of Israel and then hear the message that the king is coming, it's not good news, it's bad news. He might drive those enemies away, but what's he going to do with us when he gets here? But he's saying, come, come, come. The warfare is ended your iniquity is part. Your iniquity is part. Now, why is there iniquity part of and That's where verse 8 of Isaiah 40 comes in. Why? Because the word of God will stand forever. And he has told us who he is. He has told us that he loves us. He has told us that he will forgive us. And now that he's coming, he's saying, I'm going to make good that promise. That the same grace by which I, I chose your ancestor Abraham and I rescued you from Egypt and come with that now. It wasn't because you were doing well. It wasn't because you were righteous. It wasn't because Abraham was holier than all the other people. It wasn't because when you were living in Egypt you were holier than the Egyptians. You weren't. He wasn't. And the word of our God stands for it. He chose us and made us his people and that word is God. this passage says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Verse 5. And all flesh shall see it together. So in some sense, we have to recognize that this is, that even when Isaiah wrote this, he was talking about something that was going to have to be in the future. For all flesh to see it together. And he would be talking about sort of the end of the age when God reveals himself to everyone all at once. But the glory of the Lord will be revealed now if you've been paying attention through John, or to the Bible at large, you'll remember that just two weeks ago, as Logan's Bridge, we talked about um, this very famous passage where Moses asks God, may I see your glory? And God says, no, you can't. Because it would kill you. It would destroy you to see my glory. But here he says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Remember, Moses had to have God put his hand over his eyes as he walked past so that God wouldn't show him his glory, but would only show him his rear, his back. Because Moses maybe could handle that. But now he's saying, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now you can start to see some of the things that John the evangelist is up to because he's been talking about the glory of the Lord already. He's also been talking about the word of God already, where it says, Isaiah says, the word of our God stands forever. So what is this glory of the Lord going to look like? How will we know? How will we know that we can stand How can the glory of the invisible God be revealed to mortal flesh? I mean, let's talk for just a Second, about what glory needs. Uh, I mean, at a at a, uh, at a more uh, symbolic level, um, a person's glory would be the thing that, their the reputation, the thing that makes them uh, known to have a good reputation. If you are an expert uh, archer, then your archery skill is your glory. If you are, you know, uh Patrick Ewing, uh, then your glory is being a great NBA center. Um, But at a more specific, even literal level, uh, the glory of a thing or a person is the light that you see when you look at it. Right? So right, you know how vision works, right? You know, like you don't have a way to have your eyes interact with my face, but light hits my face, and it bounces off my face and then hits your eyeballs. And then your eyes see it. And that's, in that sense, that's my glory. Okay, so for the glory of the Lord to be revealed, He's going to be visible. And the things that are the best about Him are going to be visible. What is the best thing about the Lord, the King, coming to rescue His people? What is His glory? What does His glory look like? And how can mortal f- flesh? survive how can the eternal remember i uh, remember back all the way in verse 1 uh, in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god how can the eternal word of god which stands forever become flesh which isaiah says is like grass and withers if the word becomes flesh John is making us look at Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 says very clearly, all flesh is like grass and withers when the breath of the Lord comes on it. What can it mean for God to become a man who stands among you that you don't know? What can it mean for the eternal word of God to become visible, for his glory to become a a sensory experience for us? What can it mean for the Word of God to become flesh which withers like grass? For that, I need to refer you to John 17. Remember how we, we said last week that John is sort of expecting us to do this more than us. I want you to look at verse 5. I want you to look at verse 22 24. And look at what Jesus is This is on his prayer that the Lord, that God, his father, saying, Father, that you would be the glory that we had together before the foundation of the world. The revelation of the glory of God in the flesh. Mm -hmm. What does that for? Before I remind you when. Jesus is playing that prayer very specifically. Um, I mean, let's talk about what our lives look like. And what we need when we say that we are looking for the glory of the Lord. Okay. He's coming to rescue us. Alright, what's the shape of our pain? What's the shape of our distress? Um, God is... Said to be all powerful, he is said to be all known. Nothing is too difficult for him, it says the scriptures itself. I had a debilitating migraine on Friday. I haven't had one like that in years. Um, point where I'm like laying in bed, with just tears pouring out of my eyes. Not like I'm not like I'm emotionally crying, but it just just tears just pouring out of my eyes. And I'm like, God, you could reach into my skull and turn this off. Would you please do that? (laughs) (laughs) And and for hours, the answer was no. Um, And that's a very minor thing. Uh, We face we face greater sorrow than that. Uh, as much as as much as that hurt me, What about one of my children is sick? And I'm saying, God, you could reach in and turn it off. God, you could give it to me instead. Can't you let me bear it instead? What kind of love can it be uh, if God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, uh, let's this stuff continue. Let's ISIS continue. let other corrupt governments in the world, possibly even our own, continue. Injustice, continue. Where is his glory? Where is the king coming across the desert to rescue his people. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative? Either there is a God who could do something about this in some way and for a reason that's mysterious to us, doesn't. Or there isn't one at all. continue to talk about injustice without a transcendent measure and we're, we're between we, either we have a god who won't help us when he could or we have no god at all we don't even know what injustice means and where is the glory of this god Tortured and beaten, and given a kangaroo trial, he was sentenced to death, and he was murdered in a, one of the most painful ways imaginable. The glory. Philosophers have their ideas. They talk about free will. You couldn't have a free will or a contingent universe. Okay. That's probably all true. But that doesn't help me. Luther, Martin Luther said once, my ugly one was, is that the cross alone is our accomplishment. So, any speculation that we want to make about the extent of God's power, or what's logically possible, or what's illogical, and theodicy, and omnipotence, and omniscience, and all love, and how can he do it and all that stuff, is uh, meaningless, because the starting point what we know about God, what is visible about God, the glory of God, what he shows us clearly about himself. All that stuff is is hidden in in the sky. But what he has shown us, available to sensory perception, is a God who sees injustice and suffers under it. Who sees pain and suffers under it. That he has not left us alone in our pain and suffering, but he has come to us it. And that's the glory that he reveals. That his rescue begins with his drinking all of the sorrow and all of the pain and all of the death down to the drinks himself and ingesting it himself and absorbing it like a, like a warrior throwing himself in a grenade. Absorbing the blood and absorbing it Everything that we need to know about God, everything that we can't possibly know about God, begins now and ends with his resurrection. Because the God who suffered under evil was raised from death itself. And if he can undo that evil. He will undo the evil We don't know man. We don't know how we'll see it. But we have this hope that we can hear the voice of the one crying in the desert, make straight, the way that the king is coming and the king has come, and this is his rescue. And he will come again and he will finish the job that he has been working on from the foundation of the world. If we want to see the glory of the Lord, uh, we have this table where not only can we see, but we can touch, we can hold, we can smell, we can taste uh, (coughs) the mercy that God has given to us in Christ Jesus in the way that He has begun His rescue operation.